You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for joining us here for AOA. We've got a lot coming on today's program. We're going to talk markets with Matt Bennett of agmarket.net here in just a moment. Then in segment two, we're going to get the lowdown on meat exports from Dan Hauser of the U.S. Meat Export Federation. And then in segment three, we're going to take a look at what's happening with grain production around the world. Tanner Emke from CoBank will be joining us to talk about what he's expecting out of Brazil and Europe as this season goes along. Before we get into all of that, however, let's take a look at where the markets sit today. Matt Bennett of Ag Market joins us now. Matt, how are things looking there in Illinois? Well, how do things look as far as the crop's concerned? It looks good. You know, I mean, Mike. Asked me, oh, I don't know, a little over two weeks ago, I said I was pretty nervous, you know, and then we had a storm come through there two weeks ago yesterday on a Thursday, and between Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and then the following week, we had about five inches of rain over four events, and uh, they were fairly evenly dispersed. Um, yeah, to be honest with you, our crops look good. Uh, we need more rain, of course. You know, we're like everyone else. We really depleted our subsoil, but things look very good compared to where they did before. Matt, you mentioned that Thursday storm here two weeks ago. Of course, a lot of our audience remembers that derecho event moving through Illinois, Indiana, parts of Iowa. How's that corn looking that was struck? Is that five inches of rain helping it gooseneck back up? Yeah, I mean, most of it has. In all honesty, Mike, you may have seen it. You know, we lost a grain setup over it. And, uh, you know, actually the corn on that particular farm and pretty good this morning. Actually, I had to go meet with an insurance person, so that's a good reminder of uh, kind of what we had that day. But yeah, I mean, it was a heck of a storm that came through. You know, uh, multiple uh, locations were able to get uh, a fair amount of rain, anywhere from oh, I don't know, an inch to two, three, four inches, depending on where you're at. But uh, the corn, in my opinion, is going to stand good enough that it's not going to be like it was in Iowa. You know, back in 2020. I mean, that was a pretty awful uh, ratio uh, that they had. I don't think it's going to be like that. I do know a few folks like that. It's just not as widespread. All right. Good to hear there for those producers impacted by that derecho event. Matt, let's turn our focus to the commodity markets here on this Friday. Looking at the November soybean contract, as we talk right now, it is trading right where it was before the report came out at 11 a.m. on Wednesday. What does that tell you about the soybean market, Matt? You know, the soybean market has been quite an interesting dynamic here. Uh, obviously, it went down 32 and a half cents there uh, on Wednesday. The market didn't get the news they wanted. 300 million carryout wasn't uh, the 200 that they were looking for. But at the same time, you know, we said all along that we were a little hesitant to get super bullish because whenever you look at the world stock situation, which was verified in this July report, you know, you're going up almost 20 million tons to up over 120 million tons almost a 20% increase. So, you know, I can understand there's hesitancy in buying into this whole hog, but at the same time, Mike, there's still a lot of question marks with weather. And so whenever I look at the bean market, there is an uptrend in place. Uh, You've got to think that uh, until you break that uptrend, you've got to feel fairly good about the state of the bean market. But my personal opinion, and this is just the farmer coming out and me, I know I can make really good money at the price that you said before, 1369, 1370. You know, most have sold a ton of beans at that level in our career. So, uh, yeah, I think a person has to be respectful of that and at least step in and uh, manage some risk whenever, uh, you know, just, uh, oh, I don't know. I think May 31st, we were trading at 1140. And so I, I like trying to remind people of uh, where we've come from because that perspective, I think, can uh, matter whenever it comes to marketing. Yeah, that is incredible. We've had a $2, over a $2 rally here in 90 days. Matt, let's turn the focus here to the corn market. That $5 mark here in December 23 corn, that has been a magnet for the past three days, pulling this this futures market right back to it. Are we going to break away one way or another here eventually? Yeah, probably. But Mike, I don't know if people want this. I mean, my bias is that it might be to the downside. And so whenever I look at this corn market, you know, you take 
uh, four bushel off of the yield and basically you keep production the same because of that increased acreage we got on June 30th. Uh, but what if, you know, you, you uh, look at demand? You know, the thing is USDA is still quite bullish demand. Um, and I hope that they're correct. I hope that we end up with the export demand that they're uh, forecasting. But, you know, the current uh, new crop book is nothing short of pathetic. And so uh, if we don't start getting more competitive on this world market, uh, then then it's going to be a big issue. Now, but here's the good thing. As you saw yesterday, I'm sure that uh, you were going to ask a question. I don't want to steal your thunder, but this dollar dropping, holy smokes. I mean, this that's good news for us. Uh, it gets us more competitive on the world market than what we were before. I mean, if you look at the dollar chart, it's absolutely stepped off a ledge. And so it, it kind of looks like the corn and bean markets whenever we started getting rain. But, you know, you're under 100. And uh, it's been a long time since we've traded this dollar index under 100. So that's good news and could get us to where this export business maybe starts to pick up a bit. But we've still got a ways to go to get competitive with the Brazilians. Matt, this dollar drop, you mentioned huge drop. It does look like the corn and soybeans chart. We're at 15, 18-month lows here in the U.S. dollar. What's causing that? And is the, the devaluing of the dollar here to stay, at least for the foreseeable future in your mind? Well, I mean, I, I got to think so. I mean, a lot of folks feel like, you know, some of the good economic data that's coming out uh, is actually uh, putting the dollar in, in a little bit different light than uh, maybe it's more the recession talk. It seemed like recession talk absolutely boosted the dollar. And I know uh, most folks look at that, they think about it, and they're like, that makes no sense whatsoever. And I totally understand that. But whenever you have the uh, inflation continuing to come down, I think that that could be a factor that continues to help uh, whenever you're looking at the dollar maybe devaluing a little bit. Now, we're here really good long-term supports. I don't know that you can expect a whole lot more. If you do break that support, though, I think you could take this dollar down into that 90-91 range even, which would be quite the move. But, you know, I think one thing I would say, the last thing I'd say on all this economic talk uh, is that, uh, you know, the inflation getting rained under control, jobs report being strong, you're probably looking at, uh, I mean, it's a certainty another rate hike this month. Are we going to see another one after that? You know, I mean, I don't know. But bottom line is these rate hikes are exactly what most producers want to hear. That's so true, Matt, here. While we've got you on the line, the feeder cattle market, if folks have been watching that over the last three days, they're likely to break their necks from the volatility. We're up $1.50 here heading into the weekend. Where do you see feeder cattle going as we get into this next week? Yeah, I mean, Mike, if you look at, for instance, oh, I don't know, let's just take a look at September feeders. Uh, you know, this uh, trading day is an hour old, and you're looking at a $3 plus range. I mean, it's, it's you know, like you said, I mean, it, it's all over the place. And so whenever I look at the cattle market as a whole, okay, fat, obviously, uh, on a tear, I do think uh, you could see $200 fats on the board sometime in the next six to nine months. Uh, I'm still friendly there. I think when people start retaining heifers, uh, you're going to see some really, really dynamic markets because uh, cattle on even worse. But feeders, I mean, they're hard to get a hold of. And I don't think that you're going to get cheap feeders anytime soon, especially uh, if this corn market stays kind of stagnant and maybe even moves lower. So I don't know. I'm friendly fast, but boy, I don't want to be buying feeders. It is interesting. Feeder's up just 70 cents since I last asked that question. It's a volatile market, folks. We've been talking to Matt Bennett of agmarket.net. Matt, always appreciate your insight. Thanks for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me, Ben. And folks, stick around. We're going to talk with Dan Halstrom of the U.S. Meat Export Federation here when AOA returns. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA agriculture of america don't go away more aoa coming right up on the first wednesday of every month we sit down with our friends from the national corn growers association for a segment we call the monthly grind we like to look into the uses for that corn crop once it leaves your farm joining us this week for the monthly grind we're gonna be talking with troy schneider of colorado and denny vinacotter corn grower from ohio troy i understand you've got a road trip coming up in the next couple of weeks where are you headed not only myself but about 100 other team members from the seven action teams at national corn growers association will be going to washington dc july 
17th through the 20th for Corn Congress. The 17th and 18th, we have action team meetings. And the 19th, we'll be going to the Hill to visit legislators. And then on the 20th, we will have Corn Congress where we conduct business twice a year. Denny, no doubt you'll be talking about the Consider Corn Challenge. Can you fill us in? So we have 20 entries in it, biomaterial products, different technologies that will use corn in a different way than animal feed. Thank you, Denny and Troy. Folks, learn more at ncga.com and tune in July 18th for the next Monthly Grind. What's your favorite talk show? Where do you hear music that transports you to another time? In an emergency, where do you turn for the most up-to-date information? Well, 80 million Americans depend on AM radio each month. It's the backbone of the emergency alert system, keeping the public safe in dangerous times. Why do you listen? Go to whyilisten.com, tell us why, and you could win $500. It's that easy. Visit whyilisten.com today. That's whyilisten.com. There are a ton of social networking websites, but one stands apart for a very special reason. This one saves lives. It's MatchingDonors.com. MatchingDonors.com links organ donors with people in need of kidney and other transplants. In the U.S., 22 people die each day waiting for an organ transplant, most of them for kidneys. If you've ever considered becoming a living organ donor, or if you're someone in need of an organ transplant, visit MatchingDonors.com, home of the greatest gift of all, the gift of life. MatchingDonors.com. Through the years, you've really kept up with the times. You're on social media. Like, like, dislike, block. Maintained your health. 10,000 steps. I'm a beast. You even programmed your own smart home. In 10 minutes, remind me that I'm a genius. In 10 minutes, I'll remind you that you're a genius. If you can do all that, you can definitely save for retirement. Just go to aceyourretirement.org, a free online tool sponsored by AARP that can help you get on track with your retirement savings no matter your age. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll meet Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach, and in just three minutes, get personalized recommendations to help boost your retirement savings. They're easy to understand and work with your lifestyle. It's quick, easy, and free. Plus, it's brought to you by AARP, so you know they got your back. You are a genius. Take charge of your retirement. Go to aceyourretirement.org now. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. AOA continues today, and now we're going to turn our focus to the world at large and just how much U.S. meat are they consuming. Joining us now is Dan Halstrom. He serves as president and CEO of the U.S. Meat Export Federation. Dan, thanks so much for taking the time to join us today. My pleasure, Mike. Let's talk about some May meat export results. Dan, I understand you've got the data really fresh off the presses. Is that right? Yeah, it just came out uh, yesterday, and uh, uh, the, the good news here is that, uh, you know, on the, the, the momentum on pork continues to be record-breaking. We have the highest exports in May in two years. Uh, beef exports are still down a bit, and, but let, keep in mind, last year was a record by far. So, in the whole scheme of things, the beef numbers uh, are pretty positive as well. So, we're, we're pretty happy with uh, what we're seeing through the May data. Well, that is good to hear. Dan, I'd like to talk first about the beef market. Uh, We just had that conversation with Chris Robinson from Robinson Ag Marketing here in segment one, looking at the the slowdown truly in in global beef buying. Where are we seeing it hit the hardest? Well, I think uh, think Asia uh, in general. And, uh, you know, Japan uh, and Korea. Korea is still our largest market. Uh, albeit down a bit from a year ago, and Japan's down a, a bit more than that. Uh, and I think uh, this is a combination of factors. Number one, the, the price levels and the, and the numbers were just so huge from a year ago that uh, even though they're down, they're still in the top two or three years of exports. Uh, the other thing that's really come about slower in Asia than what we had forecasted was the rebound in food service. Uh, food service continues to struggle. Uh, I think... Uh, you know, demand in some of the, the concepts is good, 
and rebounding while others are slower. White tablecloth, for example, has is, is been slow to rebound. But the other thing people have to remember is the number of units, restaurant units, that were there pre-COVID, uh, you know, depending on the segment, uh, it could be 60 or 70% of the number of units that we had pre-COVID. So you have some generic disappearance that hasn't rebounded yet. So uh, that being said, uh, we still see a, a potential tailwind in demand at food service. It's just going to be pushed out, you know, maybe later this year, maybe early next year. But uh, food service is definitely one of the things that's slowing us down in Asia. It'd be nice to see those economies come back, get those restaurants reopened, perhaps some new storefronts reappear as those economies rebound. Dan, I want to turn the focus to something a little brighter you touched on there at the open, which is the ongoing strength in pork exports. I mean, this has kind of caught me by surprise as 2023 has has worn on. Fill us in. What did the export total look like for pork last year and what's hot for the pork, uh, pork industry right now? Well, um, your first question is, you know, in May, in May we were up 16%, 261,000 tons. Uh, that's the highest in two years. Um, and year-to-date, we're up 14%. So the answer to your second question is, what's hot? Uh, everything, <laughs> basically. Uh, but there is one country that stands out, and we've been talking about it for quite a while, is Mexico. Mexico is on a real roll, and uh, not only on pork, but on beef, it's one of the bright spots on beef as well. So on the pork side, we're, we're already on a huge uh, record-shattering pace. Uh, through May, we're up 21%, up 13% for the year on pork. Uh, that We feel like that pace will continue. Uh, beef side is up 9% in May, also up 13% year-to-date. That's maybe a bit of a surprise in the whole scheme of things, but, uh, but very welcome. And the other thing uh, is on the variety meats, both pork and beef are seeing dramatic growth on the variety meats, especially on pork. And uh, while we're flattish on the beef side, it's still, uh, it's still a big number because we had a record a year ago. So uh, really, Mexico is one of the bright spots that really, uh, in lamb as well, it's the largest market for lamb. So uh, we're quite happy with the success uh, in Mexico. Dan, as I think back to the past several months when we've had you on to talk through these figures, Mexico, Central and South America, they have consistently been strong demand areas for meat export growth. And I'm curious, how is USMEF capitalizing on this? Are you able to get buyers in that region all come together? Oh, without a doubt. Um, the, uh, uh, th- this is always a focus of MEF, bringing buyers and sellers together. And you're exactly right. Uh, you know, in the case of Central and South America, it wasn't that long ago that we were really talking about them in a sense of a potential growth market or growth regions. Well, we're well beyond that now. It, they are established regions. And uh, in fact, we have one of our largest events of the year coming up next week in Colombia. And it's the USMEF Latin American Product Showcase. And it's being held in Cartagena, Colombia. And what this does is it brings buyers from 21 different countries in the Central and South American and Caribbean regions together in one hotel for two days. <clears throat> it's 200 buyers, 200 plus buyers, along with our exporter members. We have a total of 450 people getting together for two days next week. Uh, in fact, we have a whole entire hotel <laughs> committed to this event. Uh, and this is really an opportunity to tell our story. Uh, it's about relationship building, education, and most importantly, developing commercial sales. This is the 12th year that we've done it, so we have a pretty good historical uh, record of the results, and a lot of new business comes out of this two day, these two days of meetings that we hold. So to answer your question, that's one way that we uh, really work to develop some of these emerging regions. You know, Dan, while we're thinking about South America, I understand earlier this month the USMEF puts out audio reports, updates on the issues impacting the industry around the world. And you touched on some of the things that uh, USMEF has done in the country of Chile to boost uh, pork consumption. Can you run through a little bit what all uh, what all you've been focusing on in that country? Well, once again, <clears throat> it's about going in and telling about telling our story and educating. It's going in and talking about excuse me, instead of talking about what's available, how to merchandise it, what are the options, and also talking about the safety and the quality aspects of U.S. beef and pork, for that matter. Uh, Both are very prominent at retail in Chile. And we recently hired a uh, 
uh, a team member down there. Uh, last year we hired him a chef. Um, so we have a, a culinary chef on staff based in Santiago, Chile, that's doing a lot of the work hands-on with a lot of these uh, retailers and distributors in Chile. So really, I wish there was a magic bullet, but it's really about relationship building and telling our story. And, uh, and we're really seeing the results uh, in a place like uh, Colombia that appreciates quality and will also pay for quality. That is always nice when they're willing to write the check for high quality U.S. protein. Dan, one country that is buying a lot of U.S. pork here over the past year, and it's it's not necessarily because they want to; it's because their industry suffering. Is that Dominican Republic, the island out there, or the island of uh, Hispaniola in the Caribbean? Have those pork sales to the DR continued as they're battling African swine fever? Yes, they, they definitely have. Um, you know, year to date this year, we're up about forty percent uh, on the pork side. Um, and, and consumption uh, is, has rebounded down there, but they're just more, much more reliant on imported products than they were before. Yeah, to your point, we never wish hardship on any uh, customer in, in the domestic industry in that country. But, uh, yeah, we have seen a bit of a tailwind. But keep in, keep in mind that that market was growing prior to ASF as well. So, uh, you know, there's some, uh, some generic growth that was there separate from their issues in the domestic, domestic uh, industry. Oh, that's a really good point. Dan, I'm glad you brought that up. And while we've got you on the horn here, you were talking about the challenges in food service on the beef side over in Asia. As I take a look at the May results for pork exports over into some Asian countries, particularly China and Hong Kong, it appears like they are stepping back in to continue purchasing U.S. pork. Uh, they are. Um, yeah, China is an interesting one. I think a lot of that growth is more focused on the variety meat side, so more the wholesale traditional markets. Uh, not so much on the muscle cuts, uh, which would be, you know, more into retail and, uh, and food service. Uh, but outside of that, um, I think, uh, you know, in Japan, most definitely we're seeing some progress being made at both the retail and food service. Uh, Korea still it had actually a very good month on pork, and I think we're starting to see some life there as well uh, that we hadn't seen earlier in the year. So those are all... Uh, uh, very good points, and, and we're watching it very closely, but it's welcome news to get some rebound on the pork side there. It is indeed, folks. The, the global meat export market is one to watch as we get through this era of very high cost, but very, very strong consumer demand. Of course, U.S. Meat Export Federation tracks these details monthly. Dan, if we've got listeners who want to dive deeper into the data, where should they go to get that information? Yeah, go to our website, www.usmef.org, or give any of us a call at our headquarters in Denver. We'd be happy to walk people through it. Fantastic exports, experts on this topic. Dan Halstrom, USMEF President and CEO, thanks for joining us today on AOA. Thanks so much. And folks, stick around. We'll dig into that recently released Ag Economy Barometer from Purdue when AOA returns. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. We have some exciting news to share. The National Corn Growers Association, along with AOA, are heading back to Washington, D.C. for the monthly grind. Tune in on Tuesday, July 18th for our special one-year anniversary episode. I'll be broadcasting live from Corn Congress in Washington, D.C., and we'll be reflecting on the year and what's ahead, along with current priorities of NCGA's Market Development Action Team. Make sure to listen to AOA on Tuesday, July 18th. It's a show you don't want to miss. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, as we discuss how cooperatives support farmers and ranchers and build strong communities. Each week, we'll chat with voices from across the cooperative system. From global market access to local expertise, we'll explore how co-op ownership means you own a world of opportunities. Tune in on Tuesdays or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Richard Risvet with this market update. Most of the grains and oil seeds are trading higher today. They're finding support from the lower dollar, slow farmer selling, yesterday's friendly inflation data, and wheat is finding a bit of support on talks of India banning rice exports and possibly wheat exports as well. 
Now, if we consider that India is the world's largest rice exporter, this may add demand to wheat as the next closest substitute. The updated PPI information released yesterday showed inflation levels are slowing. That's reducing the possibility of further rate hikes by the Fed. And following Wednesday's surprising USDA report, some are questioning the USDA's 52 bushel per acre yield estimate, with 57% of the U.S. soybean crop experiencing some level of drought, though that is down 3% from last week. Some of the areas of the Midwest will see enough rain through the middle of next week to boost soil moisture, but some will miss out, creating a mixed bag of conditions for developing corn and beans, while long-range forecasts show the possibility of drier conditions in the north and central Midwest. Now, total export sales commitments for the 22-23 beans are down 11% from last year. Total sales commitments for 23-24 are only 153 million bushels, which are historically low compared to the 509 million bushels sold last year at this time. U.S. export sales commitments for the 22-23 corn crop are down 35% from last year's levels, and current 23-24 sales commitments are sitting at 159 million bushels, that's down from year-ago levels of 269 million bushels, and that's the lowest since 2019. Minneapolis wheat could lead the wheat complex higher today with the growing dryness in the region and falling crop conditions. Currently, 52% of the winter wheat crop is experiencing drought that's down 2% from last week, while spring wheat areas in drought climb 6% to 25% as that dryness continues in the northern plains. The dollar is lower at its 14-month lows, while crude oil prices are lower, just below their 200-day moving average. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Richard Ristvet. Vision loss is not something that you feel until it happens. Most people lose their vision from diseases like macular degeneration and glaucoma, not at birth. With macular degeneration, you lose your central vision. You have a blind spot right in the center of your face, so I can't actually see your face. So even that little circle in which I could see became a big blur. I was 65 when I first was diagnosed with glaucoma. There were no symptoms. I had no headaches. Three million Americans have glaucoma, and half don't even know it. 11 million people in the United States have macular degeneration. You lose mobility, independence, changes your entire life. So many eye disorders can be treated if caught early. My husband tells me that I have beautiful brown eyes, and I don't want to lose that. Make a plan today to get your eyes checked. Visit brightfocus.org to learn more. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AOA. We're turning our focus now to what's happening around the world. Tanner Emke, the lead economist for Grain and Oil Seeds with CoBank, joins us. They've recently published the CoBank Quarterly Report looking at issues in the ag economy. We're going to talk through some of those issues today with Tanner. Tanner, thanks for joining us on AOA. Uh, Thanks for having me with you, Mike. Let's start here in the grain markets. Tanner, of course, Chief Economist, Grains and Oilseeds there at CoBank. We are seeing the commodity markets grapple with the world agricultural supply and demand estimates from USDA. And I'm curious, from the global perspective, Tanner, how much has changed? When you think about Brazil, that bean crop they grew this past year, do we have a handle on what the final size of that crop is going to look like? Well, I think at this point in the game, uh, Mike, uh, those numbers are pretty well in. I mean, I think the market is uh, pretty well factoring in uh, very the, the record-sized uh, soybean crop uh, coming in from Brazil, uh, a smaller uh, soybean crop in Argentina because of the drought uh, conditions that they'd been struggling with. So I think those numbers for the old crop are in. I think the, the focus now is what's going to be happening with the new crop. And it's going to be some time yet until we start to see uh, any soybeans going in the ground uh, in uh, Brazil and Argentina uh, specifically. It's going to be this fall for us, uh, but, but uh, usually around September, October, October when, we, when they start planting. So a lot, a lot of time between now and then. But at this point in the game right now, Mike, uh, everyone is really anticipating yet another uh, record crop coming out of Brazil a rebound in production in uh, Argentina as they recover from last year's 
very uh, oppressive, if you will, uh, drought conditions. Uh, so that combination right there is, uh, spells a, a lot of uh, soybeans coming out of the global market in the 23-24 crop year. And that's going to be a headwind uh, for U.S. soybean exports. It is indeed, Tanner. Of course, you mentioned we do have time before they get in those they get those soybeans in the ground because they've got to get this corn crop out. Of course, in some parts uh, across Brazil, how about that corn crop in South America? Of course, it is a big one. Do we know yet how big? Uh, I think the the you know again the numbers are uh, pretty well solid at this point from what we're hearing uh, from you know what farmers have harvested, what's moving out uh, through the export terminals uh, based on. Uh, the FOB bids uh, at their export uh, ports. Uh, it's clear that there's a lot of corn uh, down there in South America, especially uh, coming out of Brazil. And we're talking about that safrina corn or what they call the short season uh, corn that is double cropped uh, behind the uh, soybean crop. And uh, so anyway, they've got a record crop uh, entering the, the world marketplace right now. That's uh, That's been depressing world values. And the U.S. has not been competitive against uh, those very affordable uh, corn supplies coming out of South America. So uh, again, uh, the, the looking forward, the look forward here is that with an expansion of soybean acreage, that would imply, therefore, that we're going to have yet again another expansion of corn as well, uh, especially the safrina corn. So a record expansion in uh, soybeans means a record production in corn, assuming uh, the weather works out well down there in South America. It is an El Nino year that implies um, favorable growing conditions uh, for uh, Brazil and Argentina. So, but a lot can happen between now and then, but that's uh, where we're at. That's what the market's factoring in right now. That certainly makes sense. And Tanner, when we think about production in South America, we've seen those totals growing here over the past 20 years. We've also seen, it would appear, Brazil getting better at the logistics end of exporting this crop. Is that something the trade has taken notice of? It, I guess, is it true? Are they better at exporting it? And then is it something the trade's taking notice of? They have been uh, a lot better at exporting. A lot of these infrastructure issues that uh, Brazil has struggled with over the last uh, couple of decades with a lot of roads that have been impassable uh, and you, those kind of things have been resolved in a, throughout much of the country. Uh, they expanded railway capacity. You've got more storage. However, uh, we're not, Brazil's not out of the woods yet. They have got a lot of commodities being piled up on the ground uh, just because they are simply lacking in storage capacity. Now there's, they've improved a lot of the uh, capabilities of moving uh, commodities uh, through infrastructure with improved roads and things like that, but they still got a long ways to go, Mike, uh, to catch up to the United States in terms of storage capacity. That That's where they've uh, lacked. And so, uh, but over time, I'm sure uh, it's one of those things that uh, just takes time and they'll catch up. Danner, I'm curious, with the piling of grain down there in Brazil, are we seeing, are you aware, basis collapsing in that country as they, they try to get these grains moved offshore? That's exactly what would be the case. And uh, that's made uh, their FOB uh, bids uh, quite a bit more competitive. That's um, one of the reasons, uh, the, the main reason why earlier this year we saw the Chinese uh, switch a lot of their purchases away from the United States uh, over to Brazil is just because it was cheaper. Uh, that was all that, that's what it's all about. And so uh, when you are in a hurry to move these uh, abundant commodities out the door, uh, that's going to be impacting your your uh, local basis. And so uh, international buyers uh, have been taking advantage of that. Tanner, you mentioned China stepping in, buying corn, signing new agreements there with the Brazilians. And that's got me curious about Chinese production this year. Question one, how much do we trust the information that comes out of China with regard to their crops? And B, what does the market think is actually growing in that country this year? Well, we'll start with the second part of that uh, question. Uh, the market is anticipating an expansion of production uh, in China. Um, however, to your point, you know, that, that's always a question of what is uh, to be trusted uh, when it comes to the Chinese numbers. 
uh, you just kind of have to go uh, with uh, with what the government is saying and what is being whispered out there in the in the marketplace. Um, but China has had some weather issues for sure. I don't want to discount that. I mean, they've had uh, some extreme precipitation that has mostly impacted their wheat. It came during their wheat harvest, a lot of flooding. And uh, that made that uh, wheat crop uh, non-usable for human consumption. And so therefore, a lot of that wheat went directly into the feed channel, which is going to be competing with corn. And so that has affected things. Uh, the Chinese have been feeding a lot more wheat because of that, and that's going to be impacting uh, their corn usage. So going forward, uh, you know, obviously uh, weather is going to be uh, playing a huge role there uh, in China, but uh, it has affected their has has already affected, uh, excuse me, their supply demand balance sheets, especially for wheat and corn. Tanner, that makes a lot of sense. You know, as I think back to pre-COVID, 2018, 2019, there was a lot of conversation coming out of China, Southeast Asia more broadly, about a push to incorporate ethanol into their liquid fuels. Obviously, the move of corn north of $5 put the brakes on some of that, but now I'm hearing headlines. But coming back, maybe in China, also in India, lower corn prices here are going to support the biofuels industry as you look down through the rest of 2023 and 2024? That would be the natural market response. Uh, if you see uh, uh, lower commodity prices, that's going to invite more demand. That's going to stimulate uh, more usage. Uh, a couple of concerning things there on uh, how much biofuel production there would be is that fuel prices are coming down uh, globally. And so that might dampen some of the margin opportunity there for uh, biofuel, uh, biofuel manufacturers, biofuel companies. Uh, at the same time, uh, you've got some concerns politically overseas and some of these countries like India and China about converting uh, food grains, even using rice or wheat uh, in biofuels. And there's some criticism that that is not what they should be doing uh, when they have a lot of poor people out there uh, just trying to get basic calories. Uh, so, there, you know, there is an opportunity there, uh, though I don't want to discount the point you're making there that uh, lower lower grain prices and uh, will attract uh, absolutely some more demand um, it all comes down to the margin though for the manufacturer for the for the, for the ethanol producer uh, you know with uh, what the what lower fuel prices mean and then can they squeeze a penny out of uh, that conversion from uh, grain over to ethanol yeah, that's what it's all about. While we've got you here on the line, Tanner, we've also heard concerns this growing season about the weather developments across Europe. Is that something that's got global grain trade concerned yet already, or is their production usually sufficient for their needs? Well, Europe is uh, one of the biggest exporters, uh, obviously, of especially wheat. And uh, we're already well into wheat harvest here. Um, and uh, there's been some uh, concerns that uh, the yields are coming in a lot lower uh, than uh, what had been anticipated because of drought uh, conditions throughout much of Europe. And so that's going to be impacting uh, their exportable supplies. Um, while we're on Europe, uh, Ukraine had also been impacted by some drought condition, dry conditions, um, a little bit of this smaller crop in Russia as well, uh, some dry conditions there. Uh, so it, it has Im impacted uh, uh, production, uh, but Globally here, we're still talking about a record large world wheat crop. Uh, it, USDA did come back a little bit on their numbers in this last uh, WASD report. Uh, they did shrink uh, production just a touch, uh, but consumption is going up as well. And that has really tightened uh, the world balance sheet. And so we start taking a finer pencil to the numbers over in Europe uh, and start to get a little bit more concerned there uh, with their production. And uh, if those numbers keep coming down, then absolutely it's, things will get concerning there. Lots to watch as this year moves ahead, folks. We've been talking with Tanner Emke, the lead economist for Grains and Oil Seeds with the CoBank Knowledge Exchange. And Tanner, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Mike. Folks, you can keep up on their research at cobank.com and stay here. We'll have more AOA coming up in just a moment. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Nothing offers an opportunity to bond and give thanks quite like breaking bread together. 
This is especially true as we welcome our troops back home and keep those who are still stationed overseas in our hearts. Hi, I'm Gary Sinise. Since 2011, the Gary Sinise Foundation's Serving Heroes program has shown gratitude to our nation's defenders and their families by serving up nearly 500,000 hearty classic American meals at travel hubs and military locations. And now together with our friends at Bob Evans Farms and their Our Farm Salutes program, we will help to provide even more meals nationwide, offering our defenders a taste of home and a feeling of togetherness around the table. Help us show America's gratitude through food and fellowship. Look for the Bob Evans Our Farm Salutes purple packaging at your grocery store and visit ourfarmsalutes.com to learn more. While we can never do enough to support the men and women who serve, together we can make a difference bite by bite. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover guitar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. We have some exciting news to share. The National Corn Growers Association, along with AOA, are heading back to Washington, D.C. for the monthly grind. Tune in on Tuesday, July 18th for our special one-year anniversary episode. I'll be broadcasting live from Corn Congress in Washington, D.C., and we'll be reflecting on the year and what's ahead, along with current priorities of NCGA's Market Development Action Team. Make sure to listen to AOA on Tuesday, July 18th. It's a show you don't want to miss. This is Around the Table, where we explore the benefits of cooperative ownership. Today, we're talking with Blake Mernon. He's working on seed treatment technologies with the CHS agronomy team. Blake, seed treatment isn't new, but customizing seed treatment is something new. Can you tell us what you've been working on? Seed treatments is one of the oldest agricultural practices that have gone on. But being able to customize seed treatments for the need of the geography and the pest pressure that exists in certain areas is, and that's one of the things that we can do at CHS with our STI customized seed treating blending services. Blake, when you're thinking about a custom seed treatment, what have farmers put into that blend? Well, it really depends on, again, the geography that they're in. But some of the things that we're seeing in certain areas are some growers are very concerned with water mold protection or the Phytophthora pythium diseases that are very detrimental to a healthy plant stands. So in areas such as that, what we can do is that we can add two modes of action increase rates of the fungicides to really add very, very good protection against that type of pathogen. In other areas, we may need to bump nematicide protection. So what kind of benefits could farmers see with a customized seed treatment? Well, you get the exact protection that you need and you're not paying for other protection that isn't there. Other aspects that we can bring to custom blending is not only the protection aspect of a seed treatment, but also the plant growth promoting aspects that can be added to a seed treatment as well, such as plant growth regulators or micronutrient options that help feed the plant. Well, Blake Martin from CHS, thank you so much for filling us in on seed treatments. Absolutely. Thank you for the time. And thank you for joining us here around the table. Learn more about the benefits of cooperative ownership at cooperativeownership.com. The landscape of media has changed, and people are more skeptical than ever about where they get their news and information. While major news outlets show decreasing credibility, your local farm radio station still shows strong marks. In a recent survey, farmers rated information from their farm broadcasters as almost twice as reliable as major news outlets. Farm radio continues to be transparent, honest, and trustworthy. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. 
Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Keeping farmers and ranchers informed. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. AOA continues today, and we've got an update here. Well, we're talking about South America. We just discussed the grain export potential of Brazil with Tanner Emke of CoBank. We've also got an update from the USDA. Of course, this came out on Wednesday for the report from the USDA called World Markets and Trade. It's a report that takes a look at, well, global markets and trade for U.S. agricultural products. And importantly, what this report was digging into was Brazil's meat export advantages here in 2023. In the U.S., we're seeing cattle prices trade at record or in record territory. However, across Brazil, cattle prices have declined significantly. They're now cheaper than cattle in both Uruguay and Argentina. That is driving exports from Brazil to Southeast Asia. And from a poultry front, Brazil remains free of highly pathogenic avian influenza outbreaks in commercial poultry flocks. And therefore, they they don't have any current restrictions on chicken exports. That's helped driving their poultry exports higher. Both beef and poultry exports out of Brazil so far this year are higher than U.S. exports uh, in that same time period. There is an area, however, where U.S. exports remain the lead here uh, between the two countries, and that's on the pork front. Brazil exports are climbing. In fact, exports of pork out of Brazil are up 13% year over year. Massive increase as uh, a lot of Asian countries look to expand in Brazil as they're looking for a trade war free place they can source some pork meat and they're finding that in brazil in the meantime u.s exports rose nine percent but we still doubled brazil in terms of total tonnage that makes sense given the fact that u.s pork production is substantially larger than what they see down in brazil as of now thinking about those global interactions of course in agriculture we're used to dealing with them on the food side but entire economies are now grappling with these differences in uh, in product availability when it comes to critical minerals. These are the minerals that we need for anything that's high tech. Think those chip shortages that happened here over this past year. Well, we need important minerals to make those chips. We need minerals to make batteries as the electric vehicle uh, push continues from the federal government. All of these things require critical minerals that unfortunately aren't found terribly often here in North America, or at least they haven't been looked for very hard. They tend to be intensively mined type minerals. And that means production of them tends to be concentrated in Asia. We see a lot of them coming out of China and in Africa, where they don't have a lot of the strict environmental regulations that we have here in North America. Well, both the U.S. and Canada are looking to make changes. Canada has announced uh, earlier this week that they are setting up new protocols in place that would speed up critical mineral mining permits. As of right now, Canada says they do have major deposits of these critical minerals. They look out to the future, but the development of a mine in that country can take up to 20 25 years from proposal to moving the dirt. And they say this isn't going to work if we get engaged in a trade war with one of these countries that supplies us with critical minerals. We need a much quicker turnaround. Canada is facing this mounting pressure from the U.S. as U.S. policymakers look to secure critical mineral resources from countries that are more historically friendly to this country. We don't yet know what this new timeline proposal from Canada is going to look like, but they are taking a very serious effort in restricting some of the things that can delay these permit processes as it moves forward. Now, Canada is not the only place looking to identify and and take advantage of these critical mineral deposits. In fact, earlier this week, on July 11th, it was announced in North Dakota that the North Dakota Geological Survey has discovered a second area in that state concentrated in the Badlands that they say contains high levels of critical minerals. Now, this is just a research group uh, or, or a research finding put together by the North Dakota Geological Survey. There is no anticipated mining in this region as of now. The state of North Dakota is simply saying that they believe these critical and rare earth minerals are important to find. And so the state is financing 
mapping the locations of these minerals. They do note that in order for a critical mineral deposit to be economically mined, it must have a concentration of more than 300 parts per million. The samples in this region in North Dakota that were just discovered contain up to 2,570 parts per million in rare earth minerals that might be the highest concentration yet reported from North American coal deposits when we're looking for these uh, rare earth minerals. Certainly good news there as we look to diversify these supply lines for our high-tech equipment. Another piece of broad economic news was released yesterday. We talked with Matt Bennett about the drop in the value of the U.S. dollar. One of the factors that helped push that dollar down was a decline in U.S. producer prices. This is a, a survey put together by the Bureau of Labor Statistics. And what the producer price index measures is how much do companies who are building what you and I are going to buy, how much are their prices increasing? And the idea is if their prices are going up, we can assume they're going to try and pass those higher prices onto us, the consumer. Well, PPI has been trending down since the middle part of 2022. And this month, it came in at 0.1% higher. If it hits 0% higher, unchanged month over month, that means we've effectively seen the, the rise in prices, at least at the producer level, come to a stop. It is widely being regarded that this could be further evidence that the Federal Reserve could use if they decide to stop their current program of rate hikes there at the Federal Reserve. We've got one other quick piece of news here moving out of the world of food service. We've been talking about these cultivated meat companies that are being developed right now, and there's another one on the map. This is a California-based biotechnology company. They're called Sci-Fi Foods, and they're trying to build a pilot plant where they are going to make cultivated beef from cells edited using CRISPR technology. Effectively, they're going to get in there, snip the DNA in order to make tiny changes to the beef cells. Now, this company, Sci-Fi Foods believes that by doing this, they're going to be able to cut down the cost of growing these cells into beef. As we talked last week, that cost is still very accelerated on some of these products that are now making their way to market. Will this technology enable those costs to come down? Time will tell. We'll keep following it here on AOA, folks. Thanks for tuning in. Join us next week. We'll talk moves in the markets and in the weather as we look out the growing season ahead. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. On the first Wednesday of every month, we sit down with our friends from the National Corn Growers Association for a segment we call the Monthly Grind. We like to look into the uses for that corn crop once it leaves your farm. Joining us this week for the Monthly Grind, we're going to be talking with Troy Schneider of Colorado and Denny Vinacotter, corn grower from Ohio. Troy, I understand you've got a road trip coming up in the next couple of weeks. Where are you headed? Not only myself, but about 100 other team members from the seven action teams at National Corn Growers Association will be going to Washington, D.C., July 17th through the 20th for Corn Congress. 17th and 18th, we have action team meetings. And the 19th, we'll be going to the Hill to visit legislators. And then on the 20th, we will have Corn Congress where we conduct business twice a year. Denny, no doubt you'll be talking about the Consider Corn Challenge. Can you fill us in? So we have 20 entries in it, biomaterial products, different technologies that will use corn in a different way than animal feed. Thank you, Denny and Troy. Folks, learn more at ncga.com and tune in July 18th for the next Monthly Grind. What do Mick Jagger, Barbara Walters, and Star Jones all have in common? They've all suffered from something called heart valve disease. Heart valve disease affects 11 million Americans, and if left untreated, can lead to death. Unfortunately, less than one in four Americans have much knowledge of this disease that kills more than 25,000 people every year. The good news is that if heart valve disease is treated, patients can recover and live long, happy, and productive lives. But in order to treat heart valve disease, you need to know if you have it. If you or your loved ones are over the age of 65, have been treated with radiation to the chest, have been diagnosed with a heart murmur, or have a history of heart disease, it's time to listen to your heart. Ask your doctor today about screening for heart valve disease. A message brought to you by Heart Valve Voice U.S. 
For more information about the symptoms and treatment for valve disease, go to heartvalvevoice-us.org.